0: So this is Ex-Catholics for Christ Radio, my name is James Battelle, this is month number 9, this is week number 37 as we work through the book of Exodus, and please open your Bibles to the 15th chapter, that's Exodus chapter 15 as we continue to work through an almost two-year study looking at one of my favourite books in the Old Testament 15 verse 1 Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord. For he hath triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. So Exodus chapter 15 is a freedom chapter, if you will, is a worship chapter, if you will. And this also goes back to the last four Sundays, looking at an incredible battle, And when we think about battles, we think about people such as General Gordon, or we think about people such as General Kitchener, or we think about William Wallace, known as Braveheart, all different people achieving different goals during different generations. But when it comes to freedom, when it comes to worship, when it comes to truly praising the Lord for being free, only Bible-believing people... Can really claim to be free. Because the son of God said he came to set us free. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord. And spake saying I will sing unto the Lord. For he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. So singing and speaking is always connected with praise. Later on the word of God says to sing psalms in your hearts to the Lord. To worship the Lord in spirit and in truth isn't always easy. Many times we are preoccupied with problems, situations. And if you are a Bible teacher like I am, you get your doctrine straight. You at least attempt to get your doctrine straight. And all scripture was given by inspiration of God. And was profitable, first of all, for doctrine. It's imperative that you get your doctrine straight. But sometimes we put that ahead of our worship of the Lord. And I'm guilty of that. And you end up falling into the trap that Paul speaks about from First Corinthians 13. Little love, or sometimes no love. You need love and spirit, spirit and truth. You need doctrine and love. But like I say, chapter 15, in a nutshell, is speaking about freedom. It's speaking about worship. Because at the end of the day, you are either a servant to the saviour, or a servant to the serpent. That's all there is to it. You're either a servant to the saviour, or a servant to To the serpent. You're either saved or unsaved. And for the Jews, they've just been rescued from Pharaoh. And it's been said that when they went through the Red Sea, and I mean the Red Sea, which became a sea of blood, people say the Red Sea, but in reality, the Red Sea became the Dead Sea because of all the deaths. And when the children of Israel went through the Red Sea, the waves were around 100 feet high, frozen. And like I said a couple of Sundays ago, It would take up to four and a half hours for the entire group of Israelites to go through the Red Sea. Supernatural. Supernatural from beginning to end. For he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. Pharaoh on a horse. Messiah comes back on a horse. And again, Pharaoh is a great picture of the Antichrist through the years there have been many antichrists for today i would say the pope is probably the number one antichrist he's got around two billion catholics in his grip and catholics are also unfree or non-free i should say they're not free they can't breathe they're in a system if they do wrong they are forced to do penance there's no freedom in catholicism not really there's no liberty in catholicism not really they're in a system And if they speak out against that system, they are slapped down. That awful paedophile story, which broke around the world, around a month or so ago, is still doing the rounds. It's somewhat gone off the boil. Mm -hmm. Looks like the old boy is going to beat the rap. But one bishop came out, one very senior bishop in America, I forget his name, and he made a threat to Catholics. He made a threat. He said, in essence, if you challenge the papacy, look out. That's the power you see they still have over their people. And many Catholics will only go so far. They may mess around with contraception, they may, uh, may mess around with homosexuality, they may mess around with lesbianism, they may mess around with this or that, but they very rarely challenge the papacy head on because they are fearful. Same sort of thing you see. They're not free, only Christians are really free. Look at verse 2 The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him an habitation, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. A habitation, he will live in my heart. The Lord Jesus Christ will say, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That's good news. That's good news. And yet... If you sit down with a typical Jew, typical Muslim, typical Catholic, and ask such a person if they are really free, they have to say no. They hope they're free, but they can't guarantee that they are free. They cannot guarantee that their God has guaranteed them freedom. They hope they're free. But here, the Lord is my strength and song, Moses speaking, has become my salvation. Jesus, Yeshua means salvation, Jehovah saves. He is my God. Thomas would say, my Lord and my God, but is he your God? If you're saved, you believe Jesus Christ is your God. At least I hope you do. Do you know that if you don't believe Jesus Christ is God, you are an antichrist? Did you know that? 1 John chapter 4, it says, if you deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, you are an antichrist. That means, in essence, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is Jehovah, who has come in the flesh, you are an antichrist. And as a result, you are unsaved. And I will prepare him and habitation, free will, invite him into your heart, if you will. Of course, this is speaking about saved people, not unsaved people. But this is really in reference also to fellowship, relationship. First John chapter 1, staying in fellowship with the Lord. My father is God, and I will exalt him. Sir Moses is a musician, if you will. He's singing. He will write some wonderful lyrics. His sister is a dancer. Miriam, and we'll speak about her later, this is a musical family, if you think about King David, he would sing and dance, but he would sing and dance on his own, if you think about dancing today, most dancing today, most dancers today are very erotic, if you think about Dancing with the Stars, a huge hit in America, or Strictly Come Dancing in the UK, another huge hit, you've got half dressed men and women dancing Early evening, you've got kids tuning in with their parents. I mean, it's a big show in the UK. It's massive in America. Tens of millions tuning in every week. I personally couldn't care less, but it's big business. A lot of people like to watch these dancers, celebrities dancing with professional dancers. They're half-dressed, and people think it's okay, and people wonder why there's so much sin all around us. People wonder why children are raping children. People wonder why children are looking at pornography online. Look at the television. Look at a typical music video. Listen to what your kids are listening to. If you've got kids that are under the age of 15, get a pair of headphones or go on YouTube and just listen to what they are listening to. Those lyrics will turn your blood cold. Look at three. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Somebody once said that war is God's judgment on sin here. Hell is God's judgment on sin hereafter. And one of the reasons why there's so much fighting in the Bible both testaments is because people are wicked people like to fight each other people like to watch people fighting each other people like to go to boxing matches and see a couple of guys beat each other up or a couple of women beat each other up you've now got female boxers Muhammad Ali's daughter is a professional boxer people like that kind of stuff they like to see blood and guts people like to watch horror movies slasher movies people like to watch documentaries where awful things take place people take great delight in seeing people suffer. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Old Testament, New Testament, you got people fighting, killing each other, decapitating each other. David would cut off the head of Goliath, get a hold of his head, head off to see his king, King Saul at the time. So here you are, hey your majesty, I've got Goliath's head in my hand. People say that's pretty grotesque. Well, when the Messiah comes back, he does the same sort of a thing. When Messiah comes back, Revelation 19, some 110, he cuts people's heads off. Did you know that? You don't believe me, do you? Most churches are very passive. Most churches are indifferent. Most churches are weak, spineless. Most churches don't really believe in the Bible. But the Old Testament, it's blood and guts all the way. Revelation, you got... The horses mobilised, I think it's chapter 16 from memory, and it says the blood of the hoofs, or the blood coming from the hoofs of the horses, is a foot high. Over in Ezekiel, I think it says, it takes six months to bury the dead. Did you know that? The Lord, the triune Lord, is a man of war. The Lord is his name. So verses 1, 2 and 3, the children of Israel, the Jews, are rejoicing. Again, this is a freedom chapter. This is a chapter about worship, deliverance, salvation. If you are a Muslim, drop me a line sometime and let me know what Allah has done for you. What's the best thing Allah has ever done for you? Or if you are a Jew that doesn't believe in Jesus, what's the best thing Jehovah has ever done for you? Or if you are a Catholic, not born again of course, what's the best thing your religion has ever done for you? Give me the best thing that your religion has ever done for you. And such answers, if you get a response, are very feeble, very weak, very thin. But as a Christian of 16 years, my God has given me everlasting life, has declared me innocent. Now can you match that, my Muslim friend? Can you match that, my Jewish friend? Can you match that, my Catholic friend? 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. So the Lord takes him, or the Lord, when he wants, picks him out a man that he wants to destroy. Based on foreknowledge. And he sees Pharaoh, type of the Antichrist. He sees popes, the last five popes have had awful deaths from Pius XI up until John Paul II. And he allows those wicked, evil, unregenerate men to really suffer because they put their people through the mill. The Egyptians were wicked, sadistic taskmasters. Popes would make kings and queens go to Rome on their knees. Popes, priests, cardinals, and bishops to this day take money. From Catholics who don't have much money. And they say this. They say, say a prayer father for my dead mother. Say a prayer father for my dead father. Say a prayer father for my dead children. And that old rascal takes money from ignorant Catholics. Go back to the Middle Ages. Most Catholics couldn't even read or write. Did you know that? Most Catholics couldn't read or write during the Dark Ages. And the priest would get up and speak in Latin. They couldn't understand him. The Bible wasn't available, of course, and if you had a Bible, or if you dared to translate the Bible, they would cut your hands off. You think the Muslims are brutal. You go back to the Dark Ages. They take your eyes out. It's power, you see. But again, this is a freedom chapter. This is a worship chapter. This is a chapter about deliverance. I mean, real deliverance. Pharaoh's chariots. Today, we would say tanks. We would say fixed-wing aircraft. We would say warships, Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. Nobody had to help the Lord to do this. Nobody helped the Lord to create the world. Nobody helped the Lord to crucify Christ. Nobody helped the Lord to resurrect Christ. It's all of the Lord. His chosen captains also drowned in the Red Sea. So the Red Sea, like I say, becomes the Dead Sea. Spilt blood everywhere. For the New Testament, we are dead to the world, but made alive unto Christ. Now, allow me to slightly deviate, if I may, because, like I say, this chapter is a freedom chapter. And, like I've already said, this is the ninth month working through the book of Exodus. Last Sunday, we accumulated 21 and a half hours of material. So, if you just joined us, where have you been? Mm-hmm. We covered a lot of ground at Ex Catholics of Christ Radio. But here's the thing, when we speak about great military battles and winds, it's worth just going back and looking at some recent battles, because what the Jews would experience thanks to Jehovah was tremendous, was tempestuous, was completely unimaginable to have happened if you were a typical Jew around 15 or 1600 years BC. Never in a million years would you have thought that you'd be freed from the grip of Pharaoh and yet the Lord, like I say, waited until he was ready to wipe out Pharaoh and his senior bodyguards, if you will, and put them into the sea. If you think of somebody like William Wallace, now William Wallace is Braveheart. Mel Gibson made a movie about William Wallace some years ago and William Wallace was a Scottish Catholic and if you watch that movie Braveheart, he is a cross between Robin Hood and Tarzan. And if you go back to the era of Wallace, he wanted to free Scotland from uh, English tyranny, if you will. But he was somewhat naive. He was somewhat naive because he thought if he could free the Scots from the English, there'd be freedom in Scotland. But he didn't realise the grip that the Scottish nobles had over Scotland. And he was going around Scotland saying, let's all in arms, let's kick the English out of Scotland. He came pretty near. He would march down to York. He would Uh, kill many English soldiers and you say why would that be possible because he had a belief you see he had a belief and contact was made with I think it was Edward I, King Edward I and movement soon took place and Edward would have meetings uh, not directly of course but indirectly with William Wallace but here was a thing Wallace was in some ways a victim to Scottish politics and he thought that If he could get rid of the English, all would be well. He had no idea, of course, that the Scottish nobles had bloodlines with the English nobles. And those two groups came together. They would betray William Wallace. And as a result of their treachery concerning Wallace, he was handed over to the English, decapitated. His head was put on a pike, and his body was split into four parts. To go to England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. And... He was uh, sold out, but like I say, he thought he was fighting for freedom, but he wasn't really. He was simply wanting to switch one master to another. He wanted to go from English rule to Scottish rule, not realising that the Scottish nobles were even worse than the English nobles. If you go back to 2014, when we had the referendum in Scotland, the SNP were making a lot of noise about getting the English off their backs, getting London off their backs, a lot of anti-English hysteria, a lot of bigotry about the English, and people like Sean Connery and Billy Connolly were flying to Scotland, whipping up anti-English sentiments. But what they didn't tell the Scots was had they won that referendum in 2014, they would have been under Brussels. They would have been slaves to the Brusselites. They would have had to have ditched the pound And gone under the Euro. And instead of being governed indirectly from London, it would have been via Brussels. Now please explain that to me if you are a Scot. Why would you want to switch rule from London to Brussels? From English to a foreign power? I can't understand that. I would have more respect for the Scottish people, the SNP, 2014. Had they said this, we want freedom from London and Brussels. And I would have said, okay then, go for it, I wish you well. didn't happen. You see, it's limited freedom. There's no freedom in Scotland. And had they won that referendum in 2014, they'd be under Brussels today. Because if you want to join the European Union, incidentally, you have to take the euro on. You can't take the pound. You can't retain your own currency. And of course, the pound, the sterling, uh, the British sterling, is governed by London. But my point is this. When people say they are free, they're not free at all. Catholics aren't free. Muslims aren't free. Jews aren't free. Buddhists aren't free. Only Christians are free. And here, chapter 15, is down to the Jews. Look at verse 5. The depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Great attention to detail concerning Jehovah's victory over Pharaoh. For him, it was a walk in the park. It's no big deal. And here the Jews are now having real freedom. And as a result, they are worshipping the Lord. But go back to 2014. What would have been the result of it? we've got rid of the English, we've got rid of London rule, we're now under Brussels, we're going to be governed by a foreign power, hundreds of miles away, really? Where's the freedom in that? Look at the Hungarian Prime Minister this past week. He's being penalised. He's being punished by his own crowd in Brussels for being anti-immigrant. you telling me that there's freedom in Brussels? you telling me that the Hungarian President or Prime Minister, excuse me, has freedom? Are you telling me that people in Europe have real freedom under Brussels? Are you kidding yourself? Are you kidding me? There's no freedom there. Go back to 2016. Brexit took place. That's real freedom. And Britain said this, we want freedom from Brussels. We want to govern ourselves. And people are saying this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime vote. Very narrow. Mm -hmm. But that is real freedom. Nobody over us. No foreigners in a foreign land telling us what we can and cannot do. 2017, Barcelona, Spain. Catalonians on the streets in their numbers. Demanding freedom from Madrid. And they wanted to be free, and I thought at the time, good for them. Democracy, isn't it? Isn't that what we all believe in? Democracy? And they say we want to get the Madrid government off our backs. We are a very powerful part of Spain, and of course they are, a very wealthy part of Spain. I think Barcelona could easily survive on their own without Madrid's help. I know England could survive without Scotland and Wales. I'm not sure that Scotland could survive without England, incidentally. But here's the thing. Go back to October 2017, many uh, Catalonians on the streets in Barcelona, and I was watching it very carefully. Fascinating history. But they made the same mistake that the SNP made. We want freedom from Madrid. We want freedom from London, but not from Brussels. And I thought at the time, what is wrong with these people? Go all the way, free yourself from Brussels rule, free yourself from unelected, unaccountable diplomats, failed politicians hundreds of miles away from your own country, and be independent. Stand on your own feet. And the Catalonian government didn't want to go the whole way. The SNP government didn't want to go the whole way. William Wallace's crowd didn't want to go the whole way. And Wallace was betrayed. The people in Scotland were also betrayed, indirectly, of course. And so, too, were the people in Barcelona. Incredible. But real freedom is found in Christ Jesus. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. John chapter 8. The Son shall set you free, and you are free indeed. That's great news. But outside of Jesus Christ, there is no freedom. Not really. Outside of Jesus Christ, you are lost. You're lost in a system. And here, the praise, the proclamation, the rejoicing, public singing and dancing... Continues, verse 6. Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. Jesus Christ is the right hand of God. He's the Lord's right hand man. Not much takes place outside of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1. By him, being Jesus, were all things created. Nothing was created that was created without Christ Jesus. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is God, you are antichrist. It's as simple as that. And here these verses are wonderful to read. Because this is real deliverance. This is freedom from a tyrannical system. This is freedom from the Gentiles. This is freedom from a false religion. That's why ex-Catholics have so much to say. We're free from the papacy. We are free from the catechism. We are free from the priest system. But go to Barcelona, Catalonia. They're not free from Brussels. They can't make their own rules or laws. And if they go against Brussels, they are punished. They are penalised. In fact, go back to 2017. Around that time, their leader went overseas and he was somewhat naive, a bit like William Wallace. And he thought this, he thought, well, we've got Brussels on our side, a bit like the SNP thought under Sturgeon. And he said this, I'm going to go to Belgium, which of course is the heart of the European Union, and they will come to my side. They would put pressure on Madrid to give us our liberty, our freedom. And Sturgeon thought the same after 2016. The governments in Barcelona, the governments in Brussels, Strasbourg, Catalonia couldn't agree. Scotland, being Edinburgh, tried to do a deal with the EU. They couldn't agree. Brussels wouldn't allow the SNP to join the European Union until after Brexit. And the leader of the catalonian government was sold out he was hung out to dry by the government in brussels they had no interest in him they told him to be quiet they told him that madrid were in control they told sturgeon to be quiet and they told how london was in control and these politicians turn around and say they are free they're not free and their people aren't free the only people that are really free are bible-believing christians and people in britain Once Brexit becomes a reality. Six again. Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. And old Wallace, like I say, got down to York. Killed a lot of English soldiers. He was a terrorist, incidentally. He was a Catholic, but he was a terrorist. He was told from Romans 13 to submit to the powers that be. And yet he was going around killing the English. No matter how bad things get, you don't kill those that are over you, you submit to such. But of course he wasn't a Christian, he was a Catholic. And as I say, the Scots and the English came together, the nobles, the bloodlines, the Illuminati perhaps, can I say, the powers that be, the people that run this world, and they squashed, they squeezed, they sold out William Wallace. And like I say, he was decapitated, head put on a pike in London, Tower of London, and his body was literally cut into four parts, the four parts of the Union, and he thought to himself, I've been sold out by my own people. A bit like Samson back in the Old Testament. Do you remember Samson was sold out by the Jews to the Philistines? Back in Judges, you got apostate Jews betraying Samson to the Philistines. Unsaved, unclean Gentiles. And yet those Jews back in Judges thought they were free. It says, however, you man did that which was right in his own eyes. Wallace thought he was free, but he wasn't. He was a slave to the serpent. He had been sold out by his own people. The SMP, 2014, also sold out their own people. They simply wanted to switch from one master to another. From London to Brussels. Barcelona, Spain, same sort of a thing. Get the government in Madrid off our backs and we will surrender to the government in Brussels. There's no freedom there. The only freedom is in Christ, if you're saved, or in Britain, if you are on the side of the Brexit campaign. But here, verse 6, dashed in pieces, completely obliterated Pharaoh. If you go back to General Gordon, I mentioned him at the beginning of this live message. He was a British general, saved general, a Bible believer, not many of those. And he was killed in the Sudan, and his sister got a hold of his Bible, and she wanted to meet Queen Victoria, and she did. And she said to Victoria, an unsaved woman, Your Majesty, I have a gift for you, for my late brother. And Victoria said, What is this, my dear? It is his Bible. And Victoria, pretty shocked. I mean, General Gordon was a very famous soldier. One of the best of his day. When he died, there was mourning all over England. A bit like when Eric Little died in Japan. Make that China, under the cruel regime of the Japanese during World War II and she gave Victoria his Bible and that would attach to Victoria. We are told, just for the record, how D.R. Moody got Queen Victoria saved. I can't substantiate that. I spent years trying to research that. I can't find proof of that. It's a wonderful story, isn't it? D.R. Moody, the preacher from Chicago, who preached so fast that he had five stenographers trying to keep up with him. And he came to England apparently Met Victoria, got her saved. I can't prove that. But here's the thing Gordon was killed in the Sudan, killed by terrorists, Islamists, and that was major news in the UK, like I say. With the death of Gordon, his sister would go back to London, as I say, give Victoria his Bible. But down the line, General Kitchener wanted to avenge the murder of General Gordon. He wanted to reclaim some of the hurt pride that the British uh, would have experienced. And, of course, once that force was assembled, he would take 8,200 soldiers halfway across the world. They would meet up with Sudanese soldiers that were under the British at that time. And you've got 8,000 British soldiers against 52,000 Islamists. Britain would suffer 48 deaths. The terrorists would suffer 12,000 deaths. Britain would experience 382 wounded. The Islamists of the day, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, call them what you will, would lose, or would experience, I should say, 13,000 men. 5,000 were captured. Britain wiped the floor of them. Because if you go back to the Victorian era, a good number of Brits were Bible believers, God-fearers, and those God-fearing people prayed for queen and country... And like I say, Kitchener, a top general, with 8,200 soldiers, went back to Sudan, via Egypt, of course, and thanks to a superior army and advanced weaponry, and, of course, prayers of people back home, he won. And as a result of that, Gordon was avenged, Britain was exonerated, if you will, from the humiliation of a loss. So these are some of the modern battles. That we can think about in recent years. But the ultimate delivery again is to switch you. From being a servant to the serpent. To being a servant to the saviour. Which of course takes place via the new birth. Look at verse 7 if you will. And in the greatness of thine excellency. Thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sentest forth thy wrath which consumed them as stubble. More praise, more worship, and here you've got the people of God rejoicing in God's deliverance from them. And it's probably fair to say, if you are a Brit, you can be proud to some extent in your country's uh, history. If you are a Frenchman, or a German, or an American, or what have you, I'm sure they are also proud of their countries. Nothing wrong with that. But don't worship your country. Don't worship your leaders. Don't go beyond that. Of course, the Jews are a one-off group of people, unusual, very special, very blessed, and of course they are being delivered in spite of themselves. I might add, not because of themselves. Look at verse eight and our close. And with the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were gathered together; the flood stood upright as an heap, and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. More detail great attention to detail and people say this is all very well james but where's the real meat where's the real substance let me ask you a question if you are a typical skeptic cynic or scuffer if you are a typical darwinist answer me this question what came first the eye the ear or the mouth what came first the immune system the nerve system or the digestive system you can't answer me that question because you don't know and yet you turn around And you attack this book. You say that Moses didn't live. You say that Pharaoh didn't live. You say that God isn't real. And by doing so you overthrow the faith of some. And yet when we turn the tables on such people. And ask a very simple question. What came first? The eye, the ear or the mouth. They can't answer you. They don't know. They have great faith in this science religion. And of course science is their idol. Science is their God. And yet when we preach the scripture. When we Preach about the Saviour. And read from the Word of God. We are looked upon as imbeciles. Like we have a mental health issue. I put it to you that you have the mental health issue. You are the one that is probably sick in the head. Because you're unsaved. Your heart is desperately wicked. Every imagination of the heart was only evil continually. Hence why you need the new birth. So, eight verses from Exodus chapter 15. And again, this is Ex. Catholics of Christ Radio, this has been broadcast number 37, this has been month number 9, and by the grace of God we've just gone into the 22nd hour, trying to profile Moses and his sister Miriam, trying to get into the mind of Moses, trying to understand the background the culture of the Jews, trying to really examine what is freedom, I mean what is real freedom, not some pretend freedom. ...like kick out the English... ...if you're William Wallace and we got freedom... ...no, because you're still stuck with the Scottish nobles... ...who were Catholic... ...who were in bondage to the papacy in Rome... ...there's no freedom there, don't you people realise that? There's no freedom there... ...or if you're in Scotland, 2014... ...kick out the English... ...get rid of the London rule... ...and what happens then? You've got the clan in Scotland... ...SMP, the so-called good and the great... ...still calling the shots... ...under the authority of Brussels... ...using a foreign currency... Being told what to do by unelected, unaccountable leaders. Where's the freedom there? Or will go back to any other situation I've spoken about this morning. It's all the same kind of thing. There's only one real freedom. And that real freedom, like I say, comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, which of course is a new birth. And in a practical sense, in a real realistic sense, it comes through Brexit as well. Because as of next March, we have freedom from a foreign group. A foreign body of failed politicians. They can keep their Euro. They can keep their rules. They won't penalise Britain anymore. Like they are doing to Hungary. Or how they betrayed the Catalonians. 2017. They were so pro-Brussels. Or how they betrayed the SNP. And they too are so pro-Brussels. We were Brusselites. And yet the SNP were kicked to the gutter. Catalonia was kicked to the gutter. The Hungarian Prime Minister this week has been kicked to the gutter. There's no freedom. You bite the hand that feeds you, it will turn back and rend you. And yet the Lord says to the Jews, I will free you from Pharaoh. I will free you from that pagan system. And if you believe on me, if you follow me, I will take to heaven upon death. And yet most people don't want that freedom. Most people want to stay as they are and as a result, sink with the ship. And that's their choice, of course. So please open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, the second book in the Old Testament, which really does mirror the Gospel of Mark, incidentally. Exodus chapter 15, Exodus chapter 15, and look at verse 9 if you will. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. So you've got a pretty clear statement. And one of the reasons why we say that Pharaoh is a type of the Antichrist is when we look at Isaiah chapter 14. And please go to Isaiah chapter 14. So once again, the 15th chapter of the book of Exodus is a worship chapter. It is a deliverance chapter. And until you have been redeemed, until you have been born again, until you have a relationship with Almighty God, you have no idea what a lucky escape you had. And of course, there was no such thing as lucky. But you know what I mean when I say that. Isaiah 14, Isaiah 14, look at verse 13, if you will. For thou hast said in thine hearts, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation. In the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Words from the serpent. Words from Lucifer. Words from the devil. And these deadly words. Go back to Exodus chapter 15. Would be the final nail in the coffin of the devil. When he fell he could not be redeemed. When his cohorts fell they could not be redeemed devils, demons, fallen angels call them what you will when they fell there was no provision to redeem them and that's why First John chapter 3 speaks about the church as sons of God because in brief we have replaced the fallen angels but from 15.9 again it says how the enemy said this is Pharaoh speaking but behind Pharaoh, inside of Pharaoh is of course the devil, Isaiah 14. Or we'll go to Acts chapter 12, you got Herod on an occasion being carried around Rome with his triple tiara on, and people are screaming, shouting at him on their knees, weeping, overcome with grief and emotion. And never once did Herod, Acts chapter 12, give Almighty God the glory. Never once did Pope Paul six or Pius Twelfth ever give God the glory. And the popes, of course, are antichrist, types of the antichrist. But Pharaoh, verse 9, is a type of the antichrist, long before the birth of the church, of course. The enemy said, these are the final words of a dying man. Terrible, really. Printed in scripture, preserved for, what, two and a half thousand years? And here we are, many years later, reading the words of a dying man, if you will. His last words. Nothing to write home about, as they say. And yet these words would haunt him. I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Not one of his pleas, not one of his plans came to pass. Like I say, in his day he was incredibly powerful. Napoleon was incredibly powerful. All of the popes up until probably 1958, were incredibly powerful. Nowadays, the Pope of Rome is seen as a joke. He has no real authority. I mean, he has the checkbook, of course. And that's why the good and the great so-called go to Rome to meet him, to talk business, to talk finances. But when it comes to power, when it comes to clout, I would suggest this, that he is limited. His presence is limited. And much of what you see... Is a show. It's great for television. But here you've got Pharaoh about to go into the sea. And once he goes into the sea, he's not coming out. Somebody once said, if you saw a man carrying a cross outside of Jerusalem, you knew one thing, that he wasn't coming back. And it's the same sort of a thing concerning Pharaoh. And here, devastating words. And like I say, these words would return to haunt him. Look at 10. Thou didst blow with thy wind. The sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. And we say this, that he sank as a stone. Weighed down, going back to chapter one, Pharaoh would say to the midwives, take the boys and drown them in the sea. Just destroy them. Because one day the boys are going to grow up to be men. And when the men grow up, they're going to overcome, they're going to overtake our kingdom. If you go back to spy novels, if you go back to mafia movies, if you read Accounts of people such as Al Capone or Sam Giancana, both would kill people with their own hands, under the age of 15. And you read those accounts of, especially Al Capone, an evil, wicked man. And if you crossed him, he would always not only get in, uh, not get even with you. He wouldn't only get even with you, but he would take out family members. That hasn't really changed to this day. You've still got that in parts of Sicily. But one of the good things that came out of People such as Capone is how his driver, his official driver, would get saved. But that's pretty rare. Capone would go to prison, would spend years in prison, and like I say, would end up dying of syphilis. You reap what you sow. What do they say? What goes around comes around. But again, verse 10, Thou didst blow with thy wind. The sea covered them, they sank as lead in the mighty waters. Almost reminiscent to the new birth. John chapter 3 says how the wind blows where it listeth. Thou canst not hear the sound whence it cometh or whether it goeth. But of course there's no new birth here. These people are being baptised into death. These people are going down. These people are going deep into the hearts of the earth. Look at verse 11. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? It's almost a rhetorical question but it's not really a rhetorical question because there is an answer to that. Almighty God is really unimaginable. We always speak about him. We praise him. We worship him. And again, this is a worship chapter. But if you were to say to me, could I put put my words or could I explain my understanding of Almighty God in an essay of, say, 500 words, I'd probably struggle. There's not much about heaven, incidentally, in scripture. There's an awful lot about hell, but not much about heaven. Paul told you that What he had seen, he couldn't really relay what he had heard. He wasn't able to share. And yet, if you speak to charismatics or if you come across books or publications of people that have claimed to have been to heaven and back, and the internet is full of such people, you can't keep them quiet. They give you page after page after page after page. Or you speak to or you research some of these Catholic mystics. Going right back to the Dark Ages. I mean, talk about chapter and verse. And yet Paul was tight-lipped because it wasn't the Lord's will to relay what Paul had seen. What Paul saw was for his own benefit. What the apostles saw and heard and witnessed was for their own benefit because they would all be martyred. Some of the apostles, according to Fox's book of Martyrs, had awful deaths, just terrible deaths. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Allah doesn't come near. Harry Christian doesn't come near. The moonies don't come near. Who is like thee, glorious in holiness? There's a word that we've lost, holiness. God is so holy that he cannot behold evil. He is so holy that not only has he made it possible to save sinners, but he's done so through his own death. He's given you his coat, if you will. Going back to Joseph's multicolour coat. Paul told you to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, people continue to suggest that they can be saved outside of imputation. They can be saved without being born again. They can be saved or kept saved by deeds of the flesh. But Paul told you how that by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Fearful in praises. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But do you fear the Lord? Hebrews speaks about fearing the Lord. Paul speaks about the judgment seats of the Lord. He says it's a terror. Of the Lord. Good things, bad things, all of us will have to give an account of ourselves, and yet you speak to Lordship Salvation people, they say this, but Christians can't sin. Have you ever heard that? They say that Christians cannot sin. And they say this, that if you sin, you're not a Christian. What a stupid statement. If you cannot sin, why is Paul speaking about the judgment seat? Why did he speak about those that have done good and evil? If you can't sin, why would the word evil even be found? In 2nd Corinthians chapter 6. Fearful in praises. Doing wonders. So the Jews are entitled to a sign. And this book. The book of Exodus. Has got signs left, right and centre. When Moses arrived. He was up in years. And the Lord said this to him. Well Moses I've got a job for you. I want you to go back into Egypt. Type of the world. And I want you to preach to the most powerful man. In Egypt. I guess it would be like uh, meeting the Pope. Back in the Middle Ages, Dark Ages. And I want you to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Contrast that to saying the same sort of a thing to a Pope. Let my people go. And it's going to be difficult for you. The Pharaoh and his magicians are going to be able to counter with miracles what you do. And of course that's one of the reasons why Moses was equipped to do miracles. Not only to demonstrate the sovereignty of the Lord, but to also... Indirectly, witness to Pharaoh's men. And of course, you know what happens. Pharaoh's men are able to counterfeit the miracles of Moses. Like charismatics today, they counterfeit the work of the Holy Ghost. And I guess if you go back to the Middle Ages again, the popes had the mystics. They had their sorcerers. They had their magicians. They had their soothsayers. They had their mystics. I mean, call it what you will. And Moses comes up against Pharaoh Messiah comes up against Herod and Pilate, neither of which could do any miracles. And as far as I'm aware, neither of which had their magic men on hand to counter the miracles of the Messiah. Whereas Moses would come up against Pharaoh's men, powerful men. But one more time, verse 11, it's almost rhetorical. Because no matter how hard you try and comprehend the majesty, the beauty, the holiness of the Lord, you don't come anywhere near it. And that's one of the reasons why almighty God detests idols in both testaments. What does John say in 1st John chapter 5? The last verse. Doesn't he say, little children, keep yourselves some idols? I think he does. Because in the 1st century, idols were starting to creep back in again. 2nd century, 3rd century, you've got idols all over the Roman Empire. Constantine comes along and he calls for the infamous council of Nicaea. And in essence, he bangs heads together. In essence, he says, well, I am now the supreme bishop of all bishops and people are going to dance to my tune and I'm going to adopt, quote unquote, Christian principles. And I'm also going to retain some of the pagan principles. I want to appeal to the pagans and the so-called Christians deep into apostasy by the fourth century. And that's one of the reasons why the ecumenical movement today is in such a poor state, because they've done exactly the same thing. You've got Catholics sitting down with Jews. You've got Catholics sitting down with Muslims. You've got those three religious groups sitting down with atheists, Satanists, pagans. And you say, why would they do that? Because they want to make this a better world. They are failed politicians. They are post-millennial. Look at verse 12. Thou stretchest out thy right hand. The earth swallow them. Thy right hand. Jesus Christ is God's right hand man. John 1, Colossians 1, again makes the case how nothing was created that came into creation without the Lord Jesus Christ. A slight paraphrase. And those two verses from John 1 and Colossians 1 are wonderful verses to affirm the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, I'm thinking about the spirit behind Pharaoh. I'm thinking about Isaiah 14 verses 13 to 14. And, of course, 13, and yes, I've said this many times over the years, is synonymous with the occult. And when the term or when the description from Isaiah 14, verses 13 comes up, mark it in your Bibles, Lucifer is speaking. In fact, somebody once said the first person to speak in Scripture was the devil, Isaiah chapter 14, based on the belief that before Adam fell, before Eve fell the devil had already fallen of course that goes back to the gap theory but it's an interesting hypothesis it wasn't adam where art thou it wasn't the serpent beguiled me or what would adam say the woman made me do it like a couple of kids blaming each other the first person to speak in scripture could quite possibly be the devil isaiah 14:13 to 14 and yet most people most religious people don't believe in the devil. They give him lip service at best. Or they say, well, the concept is possible. But the reality of an actual serpent, an actual devil, is far-fetched. Something out of Dante's Inferno. The are themselves. Do you know something? Outside of the triune God, the most mentioned person in the New Testament and the Old Testament, both testaments, is the devil. And yet, if you speak to Calvinists, they say this. They say, well, the Lord is the author of sin. that he say that. Can you believe it? Never mind the devil made me do it. Never mind the devil made Peter cuss and swear, blaspheme. And yet he was saved, incidentally, when he did that. Or never mind Peter kicking against grace, Galatians chapter 2. And yet the devil made him do that. And yet he was saved, incidentally, when he did that. Oh, no, no, they say almighty God is making people do bad things based on his sovereign counsels before the foundation of the world. Not once found in scripture, by the way. This comes from their own corrupt minds. And when they say that, they paint God as the real boogeyman. Never mind the devil. Never mind your flawed, sinful natures. Let's blame almighty God. And when they do that, they fall into the same trap. That the Pharisees would do when they saw the Messiah doing miracles left, right and centre like Moses would do. And instead of falling on their faces and giving God to the glory. Would say that the Messiah was doing his miracles based on Satan. Thirteen. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. Redeemed. Back to the boy and the boat analogy 1555 bc the jews are delivered from egypt type of the world they go into israel in belief 1945 the jews are delivered from europe a type of egypt they go into israel in unbelief go back to 1945 1946 1947 1948 those jewish gentlemen were communists Go back to the Russian Revolution, 1916, 1917, 1918, 1919. They were communists. Trotsky was a communist Jew. Vladimir Lenin was a communist Jew. And some of the leaders that went into Israel, 1945, were communist Jews. Trained, equipped, assisted via Moscow. And that's one of the reasons why Russia, under Joseph Stalin, would vote for Israel to be recognised. In 1948, and the Americans especially said this, well, if we're not careful, Israel can become a communist country. Mm. We can't allow Israel to become a communist country. Because like I say, 48 onwards, people such as Begin and perhaps Goldemir and some other top uh, Jewish leaders were on the left and other well-to-do people and the Americans were panicking. We have to assist Israel. And of course, America pumped millions into Israel and was successful in averting Israel from becoming a communist country. And every so often, the leadership in Israel 1948, 49, 50 would play the religion card like Stalin would do in Russia, 1941. And this is the reality of when it comes to trying to understand what is really going on. 1555 BC or thereabouts, they leave Egypt and they go into Israel. Yes, in belief, although down the way, down the line, many would fall foul. And from the book of Numbers, on one occasion, Almighty God would kill 23,000 unbelieving Jews. Hebrew speaks about this from chapter 11, from memory. And you say, What's it all about? Well, in essence, they go back into Israel, 19. Forty-eight, they go back into Israel, or they go into Israel for the first time. Fifteen fifty-five, because of the Messiah. That's the only reason why the Jews are still around today. That's the only reason why Israel is still around today. Nineteen forty-eight, there was a character whose name escapes me who worked for the State Department in America, and he wrote a memo to Truman, and he said this. He said, "We don't think Israel is going to last the year. We can't see how Israel." is going to last the year. You can understand why somebody at the State Department would think such a thing. But of course, they don't know the Bible. They don't realize that Jesus Christ has to come back. He's not done. It's like I've said over the years, that the Bible is not just two parts. It's like two sections. Or it's like part one, part two. Or allow me to say this. The Old Testament is like the first half of a 90-minute game. A typical soccer match runs 90 minutes. The Old Testament, if you will, is the first half. The New Testament, if you will, is the second half. But you've got the gap, haven't you, in between? And that gap, I think, is around 15 minutes. I might be wrong. And during that gap between the first and the second half, there's a rest. The players are resting. They've been running around for 45 minutes. And I would suggest this, that the gap... Between the first half and the second half is the inter period. Where God doesn't speak to anyone, there's absolute silence. From Malachi to Matthew, there's nothing. Dead silence. And then the Messiah arrives. Of course, John the Baptist would announce his arrival. But you've got that gap, haven't you? That gap, that silence from the Old Testament to New Testament. End of the first half, going into the second half. And yet most Jewish people don't believe in the Messiah, or they believe that Jesus Christ is not the Messiah, and they have to go back to the Old Testament and scrub out the prophecies. They have to overlook the prophecies. They have to, can I suggest, even mistranslate parts of the Jewish Tanakh to get rid of Jesus. But as a Bible believer, as somebody who is premillennial, I can't think of any other reason why the Jews are not only back in the land, but are thriving They've been there, what, 70 years? Israel is the size of Wales. Israel is the size of New Jersey. Israel has around 6, 7 million Jews surrounded by 250 million Muslims. Israel doesn't produce much, really. I mean, they are supported by wealthy Gentile countries and, of course, God blesses those countries for supporting them. And, of course, their main income is through tourism. But the point is this. If you go back to the Old Testament, you see Moses and the people of Israel being redeemed and, in a sense, airlifted or raptured, if you will, from Egypt into Israel. And it happens again, 1945, 46, 47, 48. They leave Europe and they go into Israel. And, of course, they will stay there until the return of the Messiah. Some... Bible scholars say this, well, because the Jews are back in the land in unbelief, that doesn't fit Old Testament Bible prophecy. I don't believe that. Ezekiel speaks about dead bones. He speaks about breathing on those dead bones. And they come alive. There's a picture of the resurrection as well. 13 again. Thou, in thy mercy, hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. That's what I want. I want his mercy. I don't want his justice. Going back to the judgment seats of the Lord, the terror of the Lord, and I received his mercy 16 years ago. And the Word of God says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And yet, you speak to Lordship Salvation people from the Armenian or Calvinist wing of the church, they can't handle that t- passage. And I've watched these people over the years. It's torturous to watch, listen to such self righteous, puffed up Pharisees, pretending to be sinless and looking down the noses on the average Christian who struggles like the Apostle Paul would do. What would you say from Romans chapter 7? What I want to do I don't do and what I don't want to do I do? That sounds like me. Does it sound like you? The people which thou hast redeemed, past tense, we are redeemed according to Colossians chapter 1 through, via, by the precious blood of the Lamb. You can't beat that. Your salvation is dependent upon what somebody else has already done for you, like 2,000 years ago. And that's why you can't lose your salvation. That's why you can't work for your salvation. It's already been done for you. When Joan Crawford died, she left $150,000 or thereabouts. She made nearly 100 movies at the height of her career. She was a top star. Couldn't have any children. Would adopt four. Would adopt two female twins, two sisters. And a boy and a girl, and these four children, like I say, all adopted, lived in Beverly Hills, California. And the first two children that she would adopt were tortured, I mean physically, beaten, I mean physically. But as the older two grew up, Joan Crawford decided to adopt two more children, twins, like I say, twin girls. They had it very easy. They were her blue-eyed girls, if you will. And to cut a long story short, when Joan Crawford died in the 1970s, the four children were called to her lawyer's office to hear the will being read. And to their shock and horror, Joan Crawford cut out of her will her eldest two adopted children. And she left something like $45,000 to one of the two twins, strange woman Joan Crawford, and the eldest two children, Got a lawyer and threatened to sue their adopted siblings and to stop it going to court to avoid a scandal in the press. The twins, I think, let me just correct myself, the twins were given $45,000 each out of, a, out of an estate of around $150,000. She would leave some $50,000 to some secular charity and the rest would go to her longtime secretary. But the twins didn't want to have their dirty laundry washed, aired, exposed in public, and therefore they decided to write a check-out to their adopted brothers and, brother and sister, and that stopped it going to court. But even if it had gone to court, it would be very difficult to challenge Joan Crawford's will. But here, the children of Israel have been redeemed, purchased, concerning physical deliverance. For today, we have been redeemed physically and spiritually. We are the people of God. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. Could be Mount Zion. When the Messiah arrives, he would preach from several mountains. And one of the most famous is a Sermon on the Mount. Moses would go up to meet the Lord 40 days, 40 nights. And Acts chapter 1, the Lord takes the apostles up to a mountain. And they see him go up into heaven. And it says, as he went up, so will he come back. Meaning that those that saw him going up, being the church, will see him come back. That's a good picture. That's a good reference for the rapture. So these verses are wonderful. And like I say, this is a worship chapter. This is a chapter concerning deliverance. And when it comes to rejoicing in the Lord, God's people are a cut above the rest of the world. And I'll say it one more time. If you are a non-Bible-believing Christian, if you're not a saved man or woman... You have nothing to be happy about. You have nothing to sing or joke about or laugh about. If the truth were known, you are potentially seconds from eternal damnation. But for the Jews, as far as God was concerned and still is, they are a special people. And a question gets put to people such as myself that are premillennial: But aren't aren't the Jews responsible for this? Aren't the Jews responsible for that? Didn't the Jews create communism? Didn't the Jews create the Illuminati? Didn't the Jews do this? Didn't the Jews do that? Well, hold on a second. Paul told you very clearly from Romans chapter 11 how it is true that the Jews are enemies of the church. And he also told you from Thessalonians 2, for memory, how they crucified their Messiah. And Jesus would tell you from Matthew 23 how they crucified, how they killed their own prophets. And yet, in spite of all that, Jesus will say on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Paul will tell you that although they are enemies, present tense, for the sake of the gospel, and they are, you go on YouTube, you check out Jews for Judaism, you go to Israel, and you come across these Jewish rabbis. They detest Jesus, they detest the church, and they are doing their best to destroy Christianity, to stop Jews. From from converting to Christianity, and yet Paul told you that although they are enemies, they are also beloved for the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this causes a great level of agony for the Bible believer. What does he do? Does he stand with someone like Tex Mars? Did he stand with someone like Stephen Anderson, and historically the Church of Rome, and attack the Jews, or did he stand with the Apostle Paul, and the Lord Jesus Christ, just because we are premillennial? Just because we understand that the Jews are beloved for their father's sakes. Just because we know that Israel continues to flourish because of the Messiah's return. Doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to some of the evils which they have done. Jesus Christ would call out the Pharisees. Paul and the prophets would call out the sins of apostate Jews. And I can't see any reason why we can't do it. I'll tell you something else. You hear some of this anti-Christian rhetoric which comes from the mouths of rabbis, mostly orthodox, and they attack Christianity, they attack Jesus, they attack people such as myself, they especially attack Jews that convert to Christianity. And I can think of a couple of well-known Jewish rabbis that I've been watching online over the past couple of weeks. Very interesting to watch, incidentally. But I think this, I think how hypocritical they are. Because those guys, on the one hand, are criticising what we believe as Bible believers and Bible readers. And they're going around, as I say, trying to reverse our interpretation of Psalm 22, how they pierced my hands and my feet concerning the Messiah. Or they get to Isaiah 53, speaking about the Messiah, and they try to reinterpret that. And yet those rabbis are biting the hand that feeds them. And I go one step further. Those rabbis will stand up, And speak to Jews in Israel, in Jerusalem, in New York, probably in London, Manchester, around the world. And they will attack our Saviour. And they will attack our belief in the uh, Saviour. And yet they won't discourage Christians going to Israel. Isn't it interesting? They'll take your money, but they won't take your Messiah. And that's one of the reasons why Israel continues to flourish to some extent. Because of tourists that have been or that will go to Israel. And I want to hear a rabbi get up and really put his money where his mouth is. I want to hear a rabbi get up and say, don't come to Israel, you Christians. They call us pagans, incidentally. They say that we worship three gods. Have you ever heard that? They say that we worship three gods. They do what the Muslims do. They do what the anti-Trinitarians do. And they call us pagans. And they call us children of the devil. And I won't tell you what the Talmud says about our blessed saviour. But those Jews will take us to task for being followers of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will overlook the fact that we love the Jews, that we defend them, that we believe both testaments, and yet they want your money. They're hypocrites, don't you know that? They want your money, but not your Messiah. And I'll say this one final time, that if it wasn't for the Lord Jesus Christ, there'd be no Israel today. Why would the Lord allow the Jews to go back to Israel if there's no future plan of the return of the Messiah? He has to go back to Israel because one day the two witnesses are going to be sent. The third temple is going to be built. The 144,000 are going to be sent to preach. And he's going to reign, whether those rabbis like it or not, from Jerusalem. And he'll be there for 1,000 years. So I say these things because I appreciate some of the rhetoric and hysteria that continues to ricochet around the world concerning Israel and the Jews and what have you, but... As somebody once said, you've got to love them. You have to love the Jews. I know they are against us as a people. I know they don't believe in what we believe. And I know they are trying to undermine what we stand for. But never forget what was it Gamaliel from memory said over in Acts chapter 5. If it's of God, we can't overthrow it. And if it's not of God, it will soon die out. And by the grace of God, the church is still pretty strong. I know we are in apostasy because this is the church of the Laodicea generation. But I think we have to be fair, we have to speak about this subject. I don't care, I don't have any doubts or concerns when it comes to calling out Muslims who desecrate what we believe, who degrade the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to be consistent, don't we, surely? If we take on the Muslims, we take on the Catholics. If we take on the Catholics, we take on the Jews, right? We have to. We take on the Darwinists, we take on the Satanists, we take on the cults. But we do it through love. We've got to do this through love. I'll tell you one final thing. When I watch some of the colourful characters online, it could be someone like Tommy Robinson, an unsaved, filthy mouth reprobate, and that's what he is. He blasphemes the Lord Jesus Christ. Or I think about someone like uh, Paul Golding or someone like uh, Jada Franson, both professing Christians. I see the hatred. I see the anger. And I hear some of the things that come out of their mouths. And I watch some of the Islamists like Anjum Chaudhry, I think that's how you pronounce his name, and people such as him. And I think you've got two extremists. You've got two groups of people ultimately hating one another. Where's the love there? From the wing of the church. So I'll say this and I'll close. If you don't do it through love, don't bother doing it at all. If you're an unsaved man or an unsaved woman, and you happen to come across people such as Robinson or Golding or Franson, The chances are they will probably scare you off due to their hostility, due to their anger. Yes, it may be justified. And then you come across these Islamists or some of the Hasidic Jews in Israel. who can also be quite violent, incidentally. They too can be quite frightening and put you off. Because both groups, whether you like it or not, are coming from the standpoint of hatred, insecurity, instability. And when somebody is angry, when somebody is scared, when somebody is fearful, they don't come from a position of love, but from a position of fear. And I think for those of us which are born again, we can't be associated with either of those extreme groups. We've got to be in the middle somewhere. We have to have a love. Yes, of course, it's conditional. But it has to be like what the Messiah would demonstrate. He wept over Jerusalem. He was a very emotional man. He was a very loving, very kind man. Yes, he would take the Pharisees on. Of course he would take the Pharisees on and give them a spiritual whipping. But at the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ was love. At the hearts of the apostles was love. And Paul would plead with the Jews to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think if we can get somewhere near where the apostles came from. And where the Messiah came from. We have pretty much nailed it down. Don't be anti. Don't be hateful. Don't allow the devil to cause you to hate anyone or anything. There has to be a level of love. There has to be. The scripture says, how vengeance belongeth to the Lord. He will deal with these people. It could be Islam. It could be Orthodox Judaism. It could be Catholicism. It could be the far right. It could be the far left. It could be Darwinian evolution. It could be Satanism. It could be Hinduism. It could be anything, anywhere, at any time. But as far as we are concerned, as far as I am concerned, I want to do what I do from the standpoint of love. Love for the Messiah. Love for the Word of God and hope, fully demonstrating the love, mercy, and holiness of Almighty God. Exodus chapter 15, Exodus chapter 15, look at verse 14, if you will. The people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold on the inhabitants of Palestine. So if you go back to the book of Genesis, if you think of Jacob and his sons after the incident concerning Jacob's daughter's brutal rape, And his sons decided to take matters into their own hands. And they were very cruel, very uh, vengeful. And later on, Jacob would punish uh, his sons for their behavior. But it says from Genesis how the fear of God, the dread of God, would follow Jacob and his sons out of that particular town. Because, of course, if you were to sit down and weigh up the pros and cons, or if you were to assess Jacob and his sons... Versus the villagers, the communities, the towns, the city people. There was no way in a million years that Jacob and his sons could have pushed back the aggression. And therefore, once again, uh, Jehovah steps in and deals with his people. He will protect his people, even when his people are in the wrong. Going back to the book of Numbers concerning Balaam. And on one occasion, Balaam was hired to curse the people of Israel. And of course you know that story very well. And Balaam said, I can't see any sin in the camp. As far as I am concerned, everything is rosy and dandy. There's a lot of holiness, a lot of sacredness in the camp. And of course the camp was loaded with sin, idolatry, wickedness. That's a great picture of imputation. Going back to the great white throne judgment. When the devil is present, the triune God is present. And those that survive the tribulation are going to be resurrected and of course those that survive or those that live and die during the millennium are going to be resurrected to receive their crowns at the great white throne judgment of course for those of us today we are rewarded at the great excuse me at the judgment seats of Christ at the judgment seat of Christ but at the great white throne judgment the devil is there and he is just ready to move he's ready to pounce he's ready to find fault in, like I say, those that will be saved during the tribulation, those that will be saved during the millennial reign, and they will be resurrected to stand in the presence of the triune God. And the devil is like a prosecutor. He's ready to move. He's got a lot of dirt on you. Somebody once said, when Jesus Christ uh, made the statement how the devil is coming, and he has nothing on me, nothing in me, nothing against me, and somebody once said, yes, that's very true, but the devil's got plenty on us. A lot of truth in that. 14, again, the people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold on the inhabitants of Palestine. You think of Palestine, you think of Palestinians, you think of the current ongoing problems concerning Israel and Palestine. And they want a two-state solution to that problem. Even the Trump presidency is keen for a two-state solution. It's never going to happen. Anybody who carves up, Jerusalem especially, and forces it to become a two-state city is in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. There are some things that people don't want to get tangled up in. And one of those things would be Jerusalem especially, the eternal city. Never mind what the Catholics say, that Rome is the eternal city. It is Jerusalem, which is the eternal city But this description, like I say, concerns the children of Israel leaving bondage, physical slavery. Contrast that to those of us that were in spiritual slavery before the Saviour set us free. And as they leave physical slavery, you've got the surrounding districts seeing what is going on. And if you think of that account from the book of Joshua, when Rahab speaks to Joshua's spies And she says to those spies, yes, we've heard all about you. We know what your God has done for you. Jethro would say the same to Moses. We know that there's only one true God. Which shows how quickly news spread around the world. Long before email, long before Viber or Skype or WhatsApp, long before the internet. Word of mouth was the way that people would communicate. And I said this before and I said again very briefly that... 10 BC, there are no Christians anywhere on the face of the earth. 100 AD, you've got around 10 million. That shows you how quickly the gospel spread. Look at 15. Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, shall take hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Absolute fear and dread, going back to the Jacob accounts. On paper, Jacob and his sons wouldn't have been able to repel any aggression, any vengeance. Strictly speaking, what Jacob's sons did was wrong. But of course, go back to the book of Genesis. There's no police force, there's no army. You've got groups within groups. You've got uh, people uh, running their own show, as it were. And when that incident took place, Jacob's sons were grieved, which is natural, and they started to uh, brood, which of course is natural. And after a while, they decided to move. And Jacob said, you bought all this shame all this grief all this pain towards me it was all me 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 and eventually they got out by the skin of their teeth and like i say the fear of god followed them the dread of god followed them nobody dared approach jacob because jacob is of course israel so once again if you think of israel prophetically if you think of any nation any people anyone anywhere that would dare speak against israel or threaten Israel's uh, existence, you know what would follow? World War II, the collapse of countries. If you go back to 1948, you've got Russia supporting Israel's return to the land, voting for Israel at the United Nations to be recognized, because again, the Russians were hopeful that Israel would become a communist country, an atheist state, and over the next two or three decades, Israel became more friendly with America, American money was able to uh, keep Israel afloat. And Russia didn't like that. And it's quite possible that agents were dispatched to deal with, shall we say, Israel's close alliance with America. And when somebody uh, strays from communism, shall we say, or socialism, shall we say, the mother country being Russia will do what she can to regain power. 1989, Russia is sunk. 1989, the Soviet Union is finished. 1989, it's all over. And for the next five or six, seven or eight, nine or ten years, it's a third world country. Mm-hmm. You mess with Israel, directly or indirectly, look out. But here you're looking at an event that took place 15, 1,600 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We could suggest this. We could suggest that during the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that many people are going to be born A lot of nations are going to be on the new earth. And it does appear from the book of Revelation that people are still living in their own communities. Not much integration like today. A lot of people don't want to integrate. A lot of Muslims don't like to integrate. But so do the Jews. I saw a documentary last week of Hasidic Jews in New York. There are thousands of them. They don't speak English. They speak Yiddish. They don't mix with the Gentiles. And they were told time after time to witness to the gentiles to tell the gentiles how wonderful jehovah is they wouldn't do that they have no interest in anybody outside of their community and they have failed miserably when it comes to evangelizing and you would have thought this surely that after two temples being destroyed by two gentiles that's right two temples being destroyed by two gentiles you would have thought surely something is wrong we serve the one true god and they certainly did past tense and we are the people of God, and they certainly were, past tense. And now they are cast off people. It says over in Second Corinthians, how Satan has blinded their minds, their eyes, their hearts. And therefore, for today, the church, the body of Christ are the people of God. So when it comes to the thousand year reign of Christ, like I say, it does appear from Revelation that you've got people pretty much staying amongst their own kind, their own kin, not wanting to mix, going back to Hasidic Jews and also Muslims. And this documentary that I watched last week, very interesting. A lot of these Hasidic uh, Jews are being raised in almost a cult-like environment. They don't encourage further education. They don't like the idea of their people questioning what the elders teach them. In some ways, they're like the, uh, the Amish, living in a sort of bygone era. And when it comes to money, they're right up to date. They're not living on 1950s money or 1850, or 1750, they're right up to date. But here the context is dealing with Moses, the context is dealing with the people of Israel moving in numbers anywhere up to 6 million. And no matter how many times you try and visualize it, you can't really grasp it. It's just impossible to comprehend. But they're moving, they are moving. And again, think of the Jacob account with his sons, Think of the fear of the Lord, the dread of the Lord. Think of the Balaam account from Numbers. You get some idea as to what is going on. Look at 16. Fear and dread shall fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm, they shall be as still as a stone. Till thy people pass over, O Lord. Till the people pass over which thou hast purchased. Purchased, redemption, propitiation. Justification, sanctification, glorification, adoption. The typical church couldn't tell you what those words mean. A typical church in this country has no idea what those words mean. And if you were to sit down or if you were to contact five churches in any town in this country and ask them to explain the difference between redemption, justification, adoption, sanctification, they couldn't tell you. They just have no idea. It's all about feelings. It's all about emotions. Fear and dread. Going back to Jacob. Genesis shall fall upon them. It will fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm. They shall be as still as a stone. Going back to this redemption. Taking place thanks to the right hand of the Lord. And of course Jesus Christ is the Lord's right hand man. Till thy people. Context the Jews. Pass over O Lord. to the people pass over which thou hast purchased. So he would pick himself a people he would rescue himself a people he would redeem himself a people the body of christ is a redeemed bride the body of christ is a bride without blemish and spots not only are we declared not guilty in the eyes of the lord once we believe on him but we are declared innocent you can't beat that it's one thing for a judge to say to a criminal not guilty And he turns around and walks out when he knows that he is guilty. But imagine the judge saying, innocent. You'd be clapping your hands, wouldn't you? And that's what God says to those that come to him. Not only has he pardoned all of our past, present and future sins, but he declares us innocent in his own eyes based on the Lord Jesus Christ's substitutionary atonement. Now you can't get anywhere near that. And maybe one of the reasons why Jews, like Hasidic Jews... And Muslims, like those that hold to Sharia, are so silent when it comes to their lack of witnessing. is because they've got nothing to tell you. What can they tell you? What can a Jew tell me? What can a Jew tell you? What can a Muslim tell me? What can a Muslim tell you? I mean, break it down, people. What can these people tell you? What hope can they offer you? You don't speak Yiddish. You don't speak Arabic. You don't speak Hebrew. You don't speak uh, Aramaic. You don't speak their languages. You don't recognise their customs. They have no interest in you. Whereas the church, the body of Christ, has a great interest in the world. That's why Christians are being martyred all over the world. Because we have something to offer the world. And that's why atheists and Darwinists especially like to fire all of their guns on Bible-believing Christians. Because they know that we have the truth. They won't spend five minutes going after Muslims or Jews. Of course, they're terrified as such because they are from an ethnic minority. You see the state, the mess that we are in. But here, it's physical deliverance. Contrast that to the church age, spiritual deliverance. The Jews are being saved from Egypt, type of the world. The church has been saved, past tense, from Egypt, type of the world. And on top of that, according to the book of Ephesians, those of us which are saved are already in heaven. Now again, can you match that? Could you imagine a Hasidic Jew coming up to you? Or a Muslim coming up to you? And opening the Quran? Or the Tanakh? And attempting to witness to you? It would be pitiful. What could they offer you? What could they honestly offer you? The Jews have done a terrible job witnessing to anybody at any time. And unfortunately over the past 50, 60 years, so too has the church. In fact, where I live, I can tell you there are... Nine or ten churches that are shut. Mm-hmm. Nine or ten churches over the last ten years just shut down. Then are now carpet shops, kebab shops, a couple of mosques, mm-hmm. temples. And you say, you know, does that concern me? Well, yes and no. In some ways, no, because they were preaching another gospel. They had apostatized many years ago. And, and yet, on the other hand, yes, it does concern me. It does concern me because look at what has replaced such churches. Pizza shops, kebab shops, mosques, so on and so forth. So therefore, you try and weigh up what's going on. You try and assess what is going on. You go back to Exodus chapter 15. And you ask yourself the question, why does God even bother? Why bother? From all of eternity past to all of eternity future, God is God. He doesn't need the angels, and yet he would create the angels. Father, Son, Spirit, more than content, to do their own thing. And yet according to Revelation chapter 4. He wants to share his glory. With his creation. But I love the last part of verse 16. Which thou hast purchased. Going back to you can't save yourself. Salvation has always been of the Lord. And yet again. You contact 5 or 6, 7 or 8, 9 or 10 churches in your town. Try me sometime. If you don't believe me. And ask those churches to. Let you know how to be saved. If they bother to respond to you, it's a long-winded response. Baptism, church attendance, we want letters of recommendation. We want to assess you. We want to get to know you. We won't just baptise you willy-nilly. It's a system, you see. It's control. And if you leave those churches, especially the Kingdom Hall, they will say that you've left Jehovah. Have you ever heard that? They say, if you leave the Kingdom Hall, you've left Jehovah. Jehovah. They can't delineate between the Kingdom Hall and Jehovah. And the Jews are the same. If you leave the Hasidic Jewish community, they cut you off. As far as they are concerned, you are dead. And in Islam, if you leave Islam and get born again in some parts of the world, they will kill you. Sin of apostasy. But one more time and I move on. These verses are looking at Jehovah's sovereign intervention, physical deliverance of his people. Contrast that to Jehovah's intervention and sovereign deliverance of the body of Christ. I don't worry about losing my salvation. How could I lose it? Do you worry about losing your salvation? Do you sit up at night worrying about losing your salvation? I know a good number of people that do. You're wasting your time and you're wasting God's time. Look at verse 17, please. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. Sanctuary, Mount Zion, perhaps. So Moses and Messiah are connected to mountains. Mount of Olives, called the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, The apostles would ask the Messiah three questions. And again, if you were to ask a typical church in England to answer or attempt to answer those three questions from Matthew 24, verses 1, 2, and 3, they couldn't do it. Calvinists will spiritualize it. Armenians will close their eyes to it. The Church of Rome believe they have permanently replaced Israel. I don't believe that. That is referred to as replacement theology. You go to Revelation, it speaks about the synagogue of Satan. And most people, I'm afraid to say, will run over to Revelation, chapter 2 from memory, and say, well, there you are, you see, the Jews are now referred to as the synagogue of Satan. But keep reading that passage. It says how they say they are Jews and are not. Jews in Israel today are Jews. I mean, historically, biologically, prophetically, they are Jews. Hasidic Jews in London, Manchester, New York, they are still Jews. Revelation chapter 2, I will suggest, is speaking about churches, peoples, groups that hold to a placement theology. Because when they say they are now Israel, they claim to be Jews. The Jews, and of course they're not, they're liars. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance. Nobody's helping the Lord. Did you notice that? Nobody's helping the Lord. This is all off the Lord's back. In the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, millennial reign. In the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. So the new earth is for redeemed Israel. New Jerusalem is for the body of Christ. New Jerusalem, new earth, redeemed Israel, resurrected. Church, body of Christ. will have fellowship. There'll be trips back and forth. And it says over in I think it's Isaiah from memory that if the nations don't come up to Jerusalem to bring their gifts to the Lord, there'll be droughts. Going back to how there will be free will on the new earth, something which Calvinists despise, but that's how it's always been. If you don't believe in free will, you believe in humans as not just puppets, but zombies waiting for the puppet master to start to pull the strings. And yes, I know about the potter and the clay, don't why about that. I read that verse many years ago, but you have to understand several things that, because the Lord is sovereign, he has allowed mankind to retain his free will. 18. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. So for today, a person gets saved, and they are in the kingdom of God. Romans speaks about the kingdom of God. Not being something physical, but something spiritual. But the kingdom of heaven is, of course, a thousand year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got a literal Jew, being Jesus, on a literal throne in a literal city referred to as Jerusalem. That's the only reason why Bible believers pray for Jerusalem. Because of that very fact. If it wasn't for the return of Christ, which is the main theme in the entire Bible, incidentally, the... Return of the king to rule and reign. If it wasn't for that, I put it to you this morning that those of us which are saved wouldn't waste five minutes praying for the Jews. We have nothing in common with them, they have nothing in common with us. We can't get along with them, they can't get along with us. But we are told, we are commanded to love them. The horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel. Went on dry land in the midst of the sea. So you got two baptisms. One unto death, one unto life. And people say, well, I am trusting in my baptism. But here's the thing. Maybe your baptism was no good. Check Acts chapter 8 sometime. Simon, the sorcerer, was baptized. But was he saved? You might say, well, I'm going to trust in my repentance. Well, hold on a minute. Didn't Judas repent? To a priest, incidentally. And nothing came of it. And you might say, well, I'm going to trust in my confirmation. Well, hold on a minute. Check Acts 19 sometime. Paul comes across a group of Jews that were confirmed by John the Baptist, but it was invalid. Going back to works will not save you, whether water baptism, confirmation or repentance. What saves you is your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, you can't trust him incorrectly. You can't believe on him or in him incorrectly. That's something you can't get wrong. But you can get repentance wrong, Judas did. You can get baptism wrong, that crowd over in Acts 19 did. And so too did Simon the sorcerer, Acts chapter 8. But you can't get, or you can't make the mistake of believing on the Lord incorrectly. And that's the way the Lord has laid this thing out, so that you can't miss it. Look at 20. And Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbre in her hand... And all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancers. So if you speak to a typical Pentecostal, charismatic, or just a typical wishy-washy Christian, and ask him or her to exegete, verse 20, they will say, Well, there you are, you see, Miriam is a prophetess, so therefore we can have female preachers. And I was told yesterday by Patrick that he watched a clip online concerning... A group of American street preachers. And some of these street preachers, like most of these street preachers, allow their wives to preach. Isn't that strange? You've got these brothers, pretty bold, pretty brash, primarily preaching a faith and works gospel. But put put that aside for one moment. You've got these guys, pretty much fearless of the world. And yet they are fearful of their wives. Because their wives want to preach. Their wives are closet feminists. And one guy apparently walked over to one of the preachers and he said, well, it says over in First Timothy chapter 2 that a woman is not permitted to teach. And this character said, yes, but preaching and teaching are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. That's what you call a trick of the trade. Going back to what I said some weeks ago, if you are or if you know much about evangelism, especially in America... During the twentieth century, you know that when an evangelist was sent out by his church, he had to keep a record of where he preached and to whom he preached to, and how many people came forward. And many times those that came forward to such a preacher's meeting to receive Christ were retreads. They were already saved. Sometimes decades ago, but they backslid. They had a fellowship with the Lord. And therefore you got these people writing back to their churches saying, well, what happened was I was preaching in such and such's church last night and I was able to get 35, 40 people saved and his church back in his home state would say, praise the Lord, brother such and such has been successful in reaching X amount of people for the Lord Jesus Christ. But what the evangelist didn't tell you was how most of those people that came forward were retreads. They were already saved. It's a trick, you see. It's a trick of the trade. And yes, of course, we know the difference between preaching and teaching. But when it comes to women in the ministry, when it comes to women in the church, you won't find women in either testament having a public teaching or preaching ministry. And the reason why these men, mainly in America, are allowing their wives to preach is because they are fearful. They don't want to upset their wives. And yet they'll go outside bars, clubs, nightclubs, they'll take on atheists homosexuals, they take on Muslims, Catholics, but they won't take on their wives. But the point is this, Miriam, from verse 20, is referred to as a prophetess. And I'm going to suggest this, that Miriam is, in this uh, piece of scripture, referred to as a dancing prophetess. If you will, she is a modern day worship leader. But to go beyond that and state that she is a teacher, a pastor, or an evangelist is doing injustice to the text. So Miriam, if you will, is a prophetess in the sense of praise, worship and prayer. Not predicting or prophesying future events like Jeremiah, Ezekiel or Daniel, but in the sense of singing and speaking psalms in one's heart to the Lord. That's all there is to it. No woman in either testament ever had a teaching ministry And yet I've heard people bending over backwards, desperately trying to find something somewhere in Scripture to say, well, there you are, you see, this wonderful woman, it could be Deborah, or this wonderful woman, it could be Miriam, or Philip's seven daughters were prophetesses. Yes, again, in the sense of praise, worship, and prayer. And if you go beyond that, you end up allowing women to have a frontline teaching ministry. That was never God's plan. If you think of the Apostle Paul, when he came on the scene, he would travel all over the world, and he went to Greece. And Greece, back in the first century, was a cross between Vegas and Soho. A lot of wickedness, a lot of female prostitution. And there were prostitutes, men and women, all over the place. And in one part of Greece, on a hill, was this pagan temple. And there were prostitutes that would go into the town Day and night sell their selves to the people. And had Paul wanted to. This is new dispensation, incidentally. This is a brand new start, if you will, concerning Jehovah and the Gentiles. Had Paul wanted to. He could have said this. Well, as of now, we're going to have men and women preaching and teaching alongside. And of course, if you think of what uh, such people say from the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Neither Jew nor Gentile neither male or female. They say, well, there you are, you see. There's no limitations on men or women. But of course, that piece of scripture from Galatians chapter three isn't dealing with uh, the role of people in society, but it's dealing in the sense of one standing in eternity. Once you are saved, like I've already said, according to Ephesians chapter two, you are in heaven and you are like the angels, genderless. But of course, you wouldn't expect a typical person to understand that. So Miriam, like I say, is a prophetess in the sense of praising, worshipping and honouring the Lord. You can't go beyond that and teach that she was a prophet or a pastor. And yet, unfortunately, that is what most people would have you believe. 20 again and I move on. And Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, and of course Moses, took a timbrel, like a tambourine, in her hand and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancers. So this is public worship. You've got the women dancing on their own. A typical Jewish synagogue would have the men not just sitting with other men, but even when a wedding takes place, the men dance with the men. And the women sit with the women. And the women dance with the women. Even in Orthodox Judaism, there's no integration. It's the same sort of a thing. Very conservative. And yet what about their hearts? A lot of these Hasidic Jews, and I've seen some documentaries, like I say, recently, are no different to the world. Physically violent, emotionally violent, psychologically violent, but of course it's a closed community. You can't get a look in. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. So I'm going to suggest this, that Moses wrote the words, Miriam wrote the music. Never mind the von Trapps, who are Catholic and travelled the world, even performing for the Pope. Moses and Miriam knew they were the real people of God. Catholic worship music, quote-unquote, is artificial and shallow. Whereas Bible-believing Christians could be Jewish for the Old Testament, it could be Gentile for the New their music is authentic and sacred. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye to the Lord. This is for the Lord. This isn't for themselves. This isn't for the world system. For he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, Pharaoh, on his horse hath he thrown into the sea. He would create the world all by himself. He would resurrect the Lord Jesus Christ. or by himself. He will return. And rule and reign. All by himself. He doesn't need your help to do anything. And yet people start to panic. People start to teach a faith and works. Plan of salvation. And these people shamefully. And tragically and foolishly. Go around trying to help. Others to get saved. You can't help somebody to get saved. Once a person is saved. You can help them to grow. You can pray for them to get victory over this or that, but you can't help somebody to be saved. You can't help the Lord to create this world. You can't help the Lord to sustain this world. You couldn't have prayed for the Lord to resurrect the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't need your help. 22 and our close. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So the Red Sea becomes the Dead Sea. Moses has been promoted, if you will, has been congratulated, if you will. Moses, of course, is a type of the Messiah. Moses is, of course, a type of the Savior. But one more time, when it comes to worship music, historically, yes, the Jews have been blessed. The Jews have been given a special gift. And if you think of... Some of the top Jewish composers like Oscar Hammerstein or Richard Rodgers or George and Ira Gershwin. Very bright men, very brilliant men. And some of those uh, composers have pretty much changed the world of music. Somebody once asked Hammerstein and Rodgers, what comes first? The words or the music? And there was silence for a couple of seconds and they said, well actually neither. The Czech comes first payment in the post and they all started laughing but you ask a question or you try and understand one of the reasons why the jews have been so blessed not just in the musical world but in the entertainment world there was a very famous choreographer and he worked on some of the main the main movies in hollywood and he was brilliant probably the best his name was jerome robbins top choreographer unfortunately he was a secular jew and on top of that, he was a homosexual. But the gift, the blessing, has has gone through the generations. Hammerstein, Rogers, Sammy Khan, the Gershwin brothers, brilliant. And those guys could put words to music in no time. During the making of High Society, there was a scene in the movie. And that movie would uh, involve uh, Crosby and Kelly, and Sinatra, of course, and they wanted some, or they wanted an additional song put together for that movie, and they got on to Cole Porter, and said, we need another song for the movie, and Cole Porter, I mean, a brilliant genius, read about 10, 15, 20 songs, said, okay, leave it with me for a couple of hours, and over lunch, Cole Porter would write, true love, And that was written over a couple of hours. And Crosby recorded it with uh, Kelly. It was a big hit. And if you think of some of the more recent stars, like the Wham singer, uh, who died a few years ago. uh, His name escapes me. uh, George Michael. There we are, George Michael. And on one occasion, George Michael was on a bus somewhere in South London. It's the early 1980s. And he's on this top-decker bus. And he's got a cigarette packet. I guess he was a smoker. And all of a sudden this song came into his mind, Careless Whisper. And you wrote the the title of the song, Careless Whisper, and within forty-five minutes, by the end of the bus journey, he's got the lyrics, he's got the music, and within two or three months, it's a number one hit all over the world. Now some people can do that. George Michael could do it, Cole Porter could do it, Hammerstein, or Rogers and Hammerstein, as they were referred to, could do it. They wrote Oklahoma, they wrote The Sound of Music, Those guys wrote pretty much all of the musicals from the 20th century. Kahn and Van Heusen, one was Jewish, the other was not. But they wrote most of Sinatra's songs. And, of course, the Gershwin brothers. We've all heard of them, haven't we? So the blessing has been given to the Jews because they are the people of God. That doesn't mean that what they would produce would glorify the Lord. Most of the songs that Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote were secular. Most of the songs that Kahn and Van Heusen wrote for Sinatra especially were secular most of the songs that Gershwin and uh, George Michael especially would write were secular but the point is this historically when you think of Jewry they are a very distinguished group of people because they are the people of God there's something in their DNA and that's one of the reasons why so many people attack them because they are jealous they are envious not only are they good with with uh, with money but also good in the entertainment world And yes, of course, I know that a lot of the movies which have been produced and sitcoms and other stuff over the years has been very anti-God and anti-Christ. It's a double-edged sword. You see, God has blessed them, but they have free will. And some of those Jews will use that blessing for the glory of God, but others will not. And finally, if you think of uh, Beverly Shaw, was a great singer, worked very closely with Billy Graham. Mm -hmm. And one thing I will say in defense of old Beverly is to the best of my knowledge, he never recorded a secular song. Now, I know he was controversial in the sense that he worked with Graham, probably the biggest apostate of the 20th century, but Beverly, Beverly Shade, to his credit, would only record sacred songs, Christian songs. Had a wonderful voice, and he could have made a lot of money had he wanted to. I think at the height of his career, he was approached by Columbia Records, uh, RCA, Capitol Records, to record... Not just secular songs, but even classical songs. And as far as I know, I might be wrong, but as far as I know, he said, no, I will just record Christian songs, hymns. And to his credit, he wouldn't uh, apostatize. He wouldn't sell out. He wouldn't compromise. So I have respect for him. But what you've really got this morning, I hope, is a continuation of the people of Israel coming out from physical and spiritual bondage. And they are happy. They are rejoicing. The church should be happy. We should be rejoicing. We are redeemed. We are the people of God. And like I say, Miriam, if you will, is a modern worship leader. No more, no less. And I'm going to refer to her as the dancing prophetess. She would write the music, if you will. Moses would write the words. No more, no less. And to go beyond that is not only... Incorrect, but it is also asegesis, and that's something which we want to avoid as best as we can. And one final thing when it comes to singing and worshiping, never forget how the Lord and his apostles would sing a hymn before his death. I read it last night from the Gospel of Mark, and of course, Paul and Silas would sing and pray around midnight over in Acts chapter 16. So if you're saved, You should be happy that you are saved. And if you are saved, don't be too shy to raise your voice and give the Lord all the glory that is due unto him. So we are working our way through Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. And like I said over the last few Sundays now, this is a worship chapter. You've got a brother and sister like Moses, like Miriam, writing the words, writing the music and a couple of other names that came to me. From Jewry would be Lorenz Hart and also Irvin Berlin. These were, of course, unsaved Jews, but they were very clever Jews, very uh, intelligent, able to pen some of the best lyrics that have ever been penned. And that is really what poetry is all about. So you've got Rogers and Hammerstein, you've got Sammy Kahn, you've got George and Ira Gershwin, and of course, you've got Lorenz Hart and Irvin Berlin. But the theme so far has been worship from the context, from the standpoint of saved Jews. And the only saved Jew that I can think of from the world of music would probably be Felix Mendelssohn. Felix Mendelssohn was German. You've got to go back to the 19th century to profile him, to really take a fresh look at him. But most Jews are not saved. Most of the Jewish songwriters that I've already mentioned... Today and last week were secular Jews. But, like I say, because they are the chosen race, because they are God's covenantal people, He has given them something to stand out from all of the others. But again, from last week, we looked at Miriam, and from verse 20, she is referred to as a prophetess. And nine out of ten churches, if you speak to them, will run to verse 20 from the 15th chapter of Exodus and say, Well, there you are, you see. You can have a female priest, you can have a female vicar, a female pastoress, call it what you will, because here she is referred to as a prophetess. Not at all. She is a prophetess, again, in a sense of worship, in a sense of adoring the Lord, in a sense of glorifying the Lord. Go to Luke chapter 1. There is a similar uh, piece of scripture that goes nicely with Exodus chapter 15. And from Luke chapter 1... Luke chapter 1, we read about John the Baptist's father. Look at verse 67, if you will. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Not one future prophecy per se. It's worship, it's thanks, it is praise. So one more time and I move on. Miriam, at best, is a modern day worship leader. She is simply praising the Lord, like Zacharias is doing. He is filled with the Spirit of God, as would Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, prophecy in the sense of worship. Prophecy in the sense of proclaiming the goodness of the Lord. Long-suffering, not willing that any should perish Wants all to repent and be saved. But here in the context from Luke chapter 1. And also from Exodus chapter 15. It's all about worship. Like he came through for us. Like he promised Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to do A, B and C. And now he is delivered. And here the father of John the Baptist is worshipping, thanking the Lord. look at verse 76. And thou child shalt be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So you can't miss it, can you? He is filled, he is worshipping the Lord. Paul told you to be filled with the spirits of God. He told you to sing psalms, Hymns and melodies in your heart to the Lord. So don't get caught up in this modern charismania movement when it comes to people wanting to argue as to whether or not women should be in frontline ministries. In fact, this past week I caught a video on YouTube. It's gone viral. And this very famous worship leader, I'd never heard of her until three or four days ago, she was running a mega church somewhere in America with her husband. She's now an atheist. She said the entire thing didn't work for her and her husband and they travelled the world and it appears that when she went to Germany, when she visited one of the concentration camps, and I've been to two of them, that somehow it shook her faith. It didn't shake my faith. It didn't shake my faith one bit. I know why people do what they do, because they hate God. And this snowflake, probably a social justice warrior kind of a person, couldn't handle it. And she started to go into a meltdown and when I say a mega church, I mean 20,000 people. I'm going to do the math sometime. 20,000 people, tithing 10%, tithing 15%, tithing 20%. It's big money. And this woman, I say she's probably no more than 40, more likely 35, 36, is now an atheist, as is her husband. And she says she now feels free. She can breathe. And I thought, but the son shall make you free, and you are free indeed. He came to set captivity captive. And I wonder, maybe she was into Lordship Salvation, I don't know. But go back to Exodus, Exodus chapter 15. So one final time, it's about worship, it's about praise, it's about dancing to the Lord. Now for today, like I said last Sunday, if you are of the Hasidic Jewish community, Orthodox Jewish community, when Jewish people meet in their synagogues to worship Jehovah, the men are on one side, the women are on the other. But wouldn't it be interesting... If somebody from the secular world, somebody from the left wing community, some do-gooder decided to barge into such a synagogue and say, we need diversity, we want to liberate the sisters, we don't like the idea of our sisters being kept down. Never happens, does it? There was a story a couple of weeks ago of a young girl in Manchester and she goes, or she went to this Church of England set up, Anglican Church with her mother and father. She was transgender. And she was struggling, apparently, and because she was struggling, she was unable to deal with her identity. And always be mindful of one thing when it comes to people from the transgender community that uh, that kill themselves. They kill themselves not because of what people think of them, but because of what they think of themselves. And this young girl, I think she was 14, committed suicide. And now her church is having to revamp, having to revise, having to reassess how they deal with their own people. And those in the community are clapping their hands, saying... It's so wonderful that the Church of England is moving more and more over to the way of the world. But you never hear about it from the Jewish community, do you? People in the Jewish community commit suicide. How about the Islamic community? Not only do Muslims commit suicide, but you've got honour killings. But you hear very little about diversity when it comes to the Jewish or Islamic community. It's always from apostate Christianity. Look at verse 22 if you will. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and they went out of the wilderness of Shur and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So once again the Red Sea is the Dead Sea. Almighty God takes his time, he prepares, he will send multiple plagues to cripple, to punish Pharaoh and co and eventually they go into the Red Sea and it takes the Jewish people around four and a half hours based on that Russian, profess, uh, Russian professor's estimation, to go through the Red Sea. And as they are crossing the Red Sea, you've got probably a brigade or a division that are watching the Jews wanting to move, wanting to reclaim their slaves. And eventually the Jews make it through and Pharaoh and Co, and I mean Pharaoh and Co, go into the Red Sea and the sea comes down and just drowns the whole bunch. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. It could be three million, it could be six million. And they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. The Lord Jesus Christ said he was water. He referred to himself as living water. He said, if a man drinks of me, he will never thirst. This goes back again to figurative language. From verse 8, it speaks about the nostrils of the Lord. Now in the context... Almighty God is speaking. It could be God the Father. It could be God the Son. But we know that Almighty God, pre the Incarnation, is a spirit. So therefore, when terms such as nostrils or uh, feathers from the Book of Psalms or the term of the door from John chapter 6 is figurative language. I know Catholics like to pretend that they believe the Bible when in reality they do not. They give it lip service. But it's figurative language. But here, they are now wanting water, well of course, three, four, five, six million. add on cattle, they've been travelling, they're tired, they are thirsty, they've had a bit of a worship service from verse 20, but now they've got a problem, no water. If you want to, or if you take the time to go back over the 20th century and look at famous battles, and I guess I'm a bit of a fictionado when it comes to... World War II, one of the reasons why Germany especially failed in Russia was because of their supply line. It just was impossible to supply. I think from the furthest point in Western Europe into the deepest part or points into uh, central Russia was around 2,000 miles. And Germany sent some 3 million men. And of course, that wasn't logistically... Uh, troublesome, you got the weather which turned on the Germans, and on top of that, they couldn't supply the food supply, tanks were freezing up, rats were getting into the tanks, eating up the wires, you got bodies just collapsing, people dying, even cannibalism, and that's one of the reasons why Germany was unable to take Russia, had it not been for the winter, had it not been that they had overstretched themselves, Russia would have fallen, but here, you got a people needing water. And this is, of course, a great picture of the church needing to feed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, taste the Lord, drink the Lord, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Figurative language, and yet, if you know the Lord, if you read the scriptures, you know that this book can give you peace, joy, happiness. This book is powerful, and yet many times we... Don't always give it the respect that we should. But in the context, this is physical deliverance. Now, for today, we have been delivered in a spiritual sense. For today, we are in the kingdom of God. And if you think of that text from Romans 14, from memory, it tells you about the kingdom of God and how it's peace, joy, and worship. Or well, I'm slightly paraphrasing, but it's it's a picture of adoration. It's a picture of contentment, absolute contentment. When I was at Speaker's Corner some years ago, a group of atheists gathered around us and they were firing questions at us. And one of the guys said to me, so why are you a Christian? Typical London accent, typical smug Londoner. He said, why are you a Christian? Or what purpose is there in being a Christian? And within a split second I said, because it gives me great peace. And it does. When I walk with the Lord, when I stay close to the Lord, when I walk in the spirit and not the flesh, when I read the scripture, when I open my mouth and proclaim the goodness of the Lord, I have great peace. You won't find that in any other religion. Like we said so many times over the years, every other faith system, and I mean every other faith system, is teaching do this, do that, and you might, just might be saved. But here, a bit of water, it's no problem. The Jews could have been 60 million. They could have been 60 billion. It makes no difference. He knows every star in the universe. He created every star. He's named every star. In the Gospels, the Lord says he knows about every hair on your head. And yet we still worry. We still struggle. We still doubt. We still need to have our faith increased. And that's why the apostles would say to the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. Look at verse 23, please. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. Marah. Now, victory number one was to save the Jews in a physical sense. Victory number two was to transport the Jews out of slavery. A great picture of our spiritual resurrection, which took place when we got saved. That wonderful scripture from Ephesians chapter two: how we are already up in the heavenly places. Our names are already written in heaven. We've already passed from death unto life. And the great verse, the real clincher, is Romans 8:28 and beyond. How nothing, no one, can ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. came to Marah, could not drink of the waters of Marah. 22. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Desperation. If you think of any movie based on the desert or concerning the desert, and I've watched probably too many over the years, you've got a couple of guys that have got lost and they found themselves in the Sahara Desert, perhaps, and they've gone two or three days and they are desperate for water and there's no water available and they start to hallucinate. If you think of that account from Luke 16, the rich men and the beggar in hell and the Rich man who gained the whole world and yet lost his own soul. Says to Father Abraham, send Lazarus that he may dip his finger in my tongue for I am in torments. Water is precious. Water is really precious and yet we take it for granted. If you think of Israel today, always struggling for water and as a result they have to import water. They have to Remain friendly, quote unquote, with countries such as Jordan and Egypt to get their water. If you go to second or third world countries, or go to Africa, especially. You got kids, ten, eleven, twelve, walking four, five, six miles a day to get dirty water, to bring it back to their villagers, and you say to me, Where is your God in that, James? Where should he be in that? They don't believe in God. They are pagans. Look at the Indonesian tsunami that took place This time last week. Some of those villagers that were wiped out were Islamic extremists, ISIS. They hate the Kafirs, they hate the Westerners, they hate the Christians, they call them Crusaders. And yet, what happens? Countries like Britain spring into action, and as of last night, we have raised what, 10 million pounds? What a wonderful country we are. Would they raise 10 million pounds for us? You bet they wouldn't. They wouldn't even spit on you. This goes back to the Absurdity. This goes back to the spiritual blindness. This goes back to diversity. There's our word again, diversity. You will conform. The majority will conform to the will of the minority. Going back to that young girl in Manchester who killed herself. And now the church has been forced to become LGBT friendly. And if they're not, they lose their charitable status. Indonesia, thousands killed. Many more displaced. Waiting for help from the outside world, where is Allah, incidentally? Isn't Allah supposed to be all-powerful? Don't they say he is all-powerful? Why is it always falling to the West to save the day? Going back to that incident in, was it Thailand? Some weeks ago when those boys got caught underground in the caves, and their holy men, their gurus, couldn't do a thing. And it fell to Britain, America, Canada, and a few other Western countries, historically Christian of course to save the day and you got these British journalists going to Indonesia secular, completely ignorant, completely green speaking to people that hate them, just hate them like I say, parts of Indonesia, very Islamic ISIS, Boko Haram, Al-Qaeda Indonesia is the largest Islamic country on the face of the earth and yet what else should the West do? Why should the children suffer? Elderly people suffer. But this is the whole thing that makes me just at times feel sick. 24. And the people murmured against Moses saying, What shall we drink? Now on the one hand, this is a good question. Captain Moses has taken the Jews out of slavery. Captain Jesus has taken the church out of slavery. Captain Moses has led 6 million, perhaps, halfway across the peninsula through Egypt, heading into the promised land. The Lord Jesus Christ will take you thousands, perhaps millions of miles to the far north paradise, eventually New Jerusalem. And people say, yes, but, 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 I can still lose my salvation. But, 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 if I don't do this, I may go to hell. But, 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 there's always a but, have you noticed? You take them to John 5.24, they take you to James chapter 2. You take them to Romans 5.1 and 2, they take you over to Philippians chapter 2, is it? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But, 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 but. They don't want to know about what Christ has done for them. Going back to that worship leader in America, she's now an atheist. Her video has gone viral. I think as of last night, it's had around 2 million views. And people are clapping their hands, saying this is wonderful news. This woman has now liberated herself from religion, Christianity. But had she come out of the world system and got saved, that video wouldn't have gone viral, and no doubt she'll be going around the news and uh, TV studios in America. Possibly write a book for Christmas, number one hit. Probably the world love it. You see, the world love it when somebody falls away and starts to become an atheist. But you wait, or you. Take a look at when somebody gets saved, like Felix Mandelson, Jewish, a wonderful composer, wrote some very good music, a bit like Brahms, a bit like uh, Beethoven, Mm. but I'm also thinking about uh, somebody else whose name escapes me, the great composer who was able to play chess Uh, while playing uh, the uh, organ, Bach, thank you, and of course Bach was also saved. Let's keep moving on. 25. And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree which, when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them, and said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and wilt give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which are brought upon the Egyptians. I the Lord that healeth the diseases, dirty word I'm going to take you out of Egypt, a land filled with filth, disease, just disgusting in every possible way and I went to Egypt some years ago, historically very interesting, but it's a very poor country, very backward country, a lot of poverty in Egypt and here the Lord is now going to test his people you can. And you should contrast this to the New Testament, to a Christian's walk with the Lord. The strongest uh, passage in the New Testament for standing in states is First Corinthians chapter 11. And also, I think it's from James from memory, or First John, always get confused. It says, or it speaks about the sin unto death. First Corinthians 11, it says, some of you are sick, some of you are weak. And some of you sleep in the context, saved people, carnal people, refusing to repent, sick, dying, and eventually the Lord just kills them. That piece of scripture, incidentally, is overlooked by Lordship Salvation people. A bit like Romans chapter 11 is overlooked by Reformed Christians or replacement theology people. They can't handle it. Because Romans 11 says that the Jews are not through and they're not. And also, 1 Corinthians 11 speaks about the two natures in the believer, of the believer. And again, if you are into Lordship salvation, you can't handle that piece of scripture. And of course, the sin unto death. And he cried unto the Lord 25 being Moses, of course. The Lord showed him a tree. Go back to Genesis, you got a couple of trees, two or three trees. Revelation, you got the tree. Once again, returning. And here the tree is the source. Jesus Christ would die on a tree. Picturing a cursed death. Cried unto the Lord. The Lord showed him a tree. Which when he had cast into the waters. The waters were made sweet. This is a supernatural tree. There he made for them a statute. And an ordinance. And there he proved them. And yes he will prove you. You are told to work out your salvation. I gave the text a few minutes ago. In the context. Make sure you are saved. You were told to make your calling and election election sure. You were told to test all things. You were told to be a doer of the word. That's what James 2 is all about. If you are saved, there will be a level of faith, a level of works, which will prove that you are saved. So the Lord is going to prove you. He's going to test you. He owns you. But here in the context, it is Israel pre the law. The law hasn't yet been given. And he said, 26 again, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God. Now, in the context, the pronouns are singular. So Jehovah appears to be speaking to Moses, but vicariously, he is speaking to all of Israel, of course. If thou wilt diligently hearken, listen to the voice of the Lord thy God. He's only your God if you believe on him. He's only your God if you receive him. If you go back to the Indonesian incidents, they are. On their hands and knees, digging out bodies with their own bare hands. A lot of poverty in Indonesia, a lot of corruption in Indonesia. And isn't it interesting when these situations take place? We hear very little about countries such as Saudi Arabia, Iran or Kuwait, so-called good Islamic countries. They may send a token force to help out their Islamic brethren. But nine times out of ten, it's Britain, America... And Canada, amazing. But of course they have a God, but their God seems to be impotent. Unable, unwilling to intervene, to help out his own people. And he will allow the Christians, the Crusaders, quote unquote, to go in to such a country and help them out. And wilt do that which is right in his sight. If you love me, keep my commandments. And wilt give ear to his commandments. And yes, there are commandments for the New Testament. The Pauline epistles list many commandments. Maybe one day I will do a study on New Testament commandments. Yes, you're saved by your faith in Christ alone, and you are kept saved by his substitutionary death on the cross. But I'll tell you something, friends. He expects you to walk a fine line, and he gives you the tools to do it. And yet, most of the time, and I include myself, fail miserably, fail miserably. Wilt give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of these diseases upon thee. Never mind fearing the devil. Never mind fearing mankind. Never mind fearing yourself. Do you fear the Lord? Which I have brought upon the Egyptians. For I am the Lord that healeth thee. So we speak about almighty God being sovereign. Being very merciful. And of course he certainly is. And we think about that text from Isaiah, how he creates the lights, the darkness, the good and the evil. And if you speak to the average Calvinist, they say, well, there you are, you see, God creates evil. He creates darkness and therefore, they conclude, he must be the author of sin. Hold on. He isn't the author of sin. He will create light from darkness, a picture of day and night, a picture of salvation. And yes, he will create, he will allow evil to run. Look at poor old Job. Old Job was worked over like few have been. The Apostle Paul was worked over like few have ever been. And on both occasions, the Lord used the devil to work over Job and also Paul. The devil would tempt the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord allows wickedness to take place. Going back to that apostate in America, now an atheist. A bit like the daughter came out to the Westboro Baptist Church, Phelps. I forget her first name, the daughter. And she too is now an atheist, raised in a hyper-Calvinist church. You see, this is the reality, isn't it? You've got two extremes. You've got the hyper-Calvinists in Topeka, Kansas, Westboro Baptist Church, the Phelps. And you've got this lady and her husband on the charismatic Armenian wing of the church. It's all the same thing. Both systems put maximum pressure On people to live a particular way. One brother put it very wisely. He said it's not lordship salvation. It's lordship probation. Lordship probation. I like that. And he's right. Because according to their system. Once you get saved. You are now on probation. To live a particular way. And if you don't live a particular way. You are persona non grata. Nobody cares about you. And eventually they just get rid of you. I am the Lord that healeth thee. Yes of course. But you've got to walk with him. You have to yield unto the Holy Spirit. You have to confess your sins on a daily basis. 1 John chapter 1. And that's one of the reasons why I think so many Christians are so weak and incapable of being a blessing to the brethren and also to those all around them. Because they're weak. In fact, there was a movement at the moment uh, to stop people or to attack people. Or to suggest that confessing one's sins post-salvation isn't scriptural. Yes it is. If you are saved, especially on a day like today, the Lord's day, you should confess your sins to the Lord before you break of the bread. Not for your salvation, of course not. But for fellowship with the Lord. 27 on our close. And they came to Elam, where were twelve wells of water, and three score and ten palm trees, and encamp there by the waters. So seventy palm trees have been provided. Almighty God wouldn't rescue the people of Israel in a way that they could never have imagined, march them around for some forty years, which you read about later over in Deuteronomy and elsewhere, just to fail them when it comes to water. And again, water in the Old Testament keeps you alive. Water today keeps you alive. Of course it does. But water in the Bible is a picture of nourishment. Is a picture of nutrition. Is a picture of energy. Taste of the Lord. Taste that he is good. Eat the Lord. Drink his blood. These are all clear pictures and passages. Uh, passages about the Lord being more than enough. So let me wrap this up and say a few more things, and I'll close. You've seen Miriam being a prophetess, a worship leader, if you will. And I say that, quote-unquote. I'm not in favor, incidentally, of modern worship music. I don't care for it. I'm not particularly keen on contemporary Christian music, quote-unquote. But I'm simply... Making the case, so you know what I'm referring to. She wasn't a prophetess. She wasn't a priest. She wasn't a prophet. She had no authority over other people. You won't find any woman in the New Testament who was a preacher, a teacher, or a pastoress. Up until 1960, or thereabouts, 98% of Christian churches in Britain, America, Australia, New Zealand, were run by men. 1965, Vatican II, 1969, abortion is legalised, homosexuality is decriminalised, women say it's our time, it's our turn, we want to be heard, burn their bra, all that nonsense, and they got women pretty much calling the shots. It's now a woman's world, people think that men are still uh, running the world, I'm not so sure anymore, I'm not so sure, I saw those pictures outside the Supreme Court yesterday, concerning Brett Kavanaugh, a fundamentalist Roman Catholic, incidentally, who would have no time for someone such as myself. And yet, I will say this, that he was probably innocent. And yet, look at the heat that he took. Look at all the women that were mobilized to call on his nomination to be refused. Maybe four, five hundred, maybe a thousand Of course, you don't see any celebrities there like Hillary or Maxine or Nancy linking arms and marching and taking a bullet. Of course not. But ask yourself this. All those women coming together to stand shoulder to shoulder with their alleged victim, their alleged sister, and yet you look at other parts of the world, why aren't they outside the Indonesian embassy? Or the Saudi Arabian embassy, or the Kuwaiti embassy, or the Turkish embassy, or the Iranian embassy. They are destroying women. Or go to China. Up until recently, if a woman had more than one child, or if she fell pregnant twice, she would have to have have a, a termination, an abortion. They won't take on those people, will they? They will take on men because they hate men. And I think it's fair to say that this is almost, almost a woman's world so we will close it there and I think these verses are clear enough when it comes to what is really going on how the Lord has saved his people has crisscrossed them has carried them for a particular stretch or a particular distance and now he is going to give them what they need, trees, water this is why it's called the promised land milk and honey you can survive on milk and honey and again that description, milk and honey is figurative for Almighty God giving you all that you need and never hanging you out to dry. Just a quick P.S. when it comes to what has taken place in Indonesia over the past week. I was shown a video just a couple of days ago of a Christian community in Indonesia that are wanting outside help. Not money. They want prayers from the true church, the body of Christ, to give them confidence. Not just to take care of their Uh, biological brothers and sisters, but also to give them the gospel, the word of God. So it's not just that Indonesia is the world's largest Islamic country, which it certainly is, but there are Christians there. Not many, but there are some, and therefore it's always worth praying for those people to witness to their Islamic neighbours, to take care of their physical needs and also their spiritual needs, and we keep them in prayer indeed. Amen.